The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode 52, which I think counts as a year, Jack. I think we've been on the air one year today. Incredible. Jack, the producer, I'm very excited. I can't remember exactly what day we started last year because I can't remember anything. Um, it turns out that toddlers are filthy little darlings and my kid has picked up a something called Coxsackie virus which if you are a parent you may have just groaned aloud if you are not a parent I will tell you uh, hang on one second I gotta turn up my head oh there we go I gotta turn up my headphones um I will tell you it is the uh, its alternate name is hoof no not hoof I keep saying hoof and mouth disease foot hand and mouth disease which is just as delightful as it sounds it begins with a high fever and lethargy and a loss of appetite it then turns into a happy-go-lucky kid who you would know nothing was wrong with except for the fact that he is covered from head to toe in pox and so he had an extra long nap yesterday because you know when you're sick you want to sleep so we let him sleep and then from 2 30 to 4 30 a.m he was ready to party and so that meant that mommy and daddy had to be ready to party and that the, we'd never turn the light on and he just sat between us in the bed and at some point drifted off. I at some point drifted off. He still got up at 6 a.m. ready to watch Thomas the Tank Engine and have his sippy cup and puffs. So that equates to me being highly caffeinated and exhausted, which is an interesting combination. I leave... Heritage Radio Network after my show every Tuesday and go to one of the two universities that I teach in the food studies department of and from 530 to nine o'clock tonight I'm going to be teaching and I don't know how it's going to go. I'm going to trust that tonight will not be the night that things go completely off the rails. This university is um, there. They are. Let's just say that I'm very, very hippie for them. And so they um, needed someone to fill in. I filled in at the last minute, but I didn't get to go to any of the orientations where they outlined expectations. Um, and so everything's been very quick and like I'm just thrown into the class. And that has resulted in some miscommunications about things like what I'm expected to wear. So let's see if tonight's the night that things go completely south. Um, that being said, I had... Another conversation with someone in an academic setting that made me realize two things. One that I, I've been told by people in showbiz that I need some platforms on which I am an authority. So, for instance, sustainable seafood would be a natural choice, even though it makes me too depressed to think about all of the time. Last week, I came down on my stance on gluten sensitivity. That would be a platform and it turns out that there's another one that I'm having a little bit of trouble articulating in, uh, you know, two or three words. But essentially, I'm kind of a food. Um, I can't think of the right word. My husband says not to use the word libertarian because it's so weighted. But it, essentially, I got into an argument with someone who 
wanted to persuade me to believe that the government has a right or a responsibility to protect all citizens from the evils of the food industry as a whole. And I couldn't stand behind that. And it was an interesting style of debate because I could argue either side. She was very, very impassioned or he, she or he, I'm trying to keep this as anonymous as possible. This person was very, very impassioned, but the argument really stayed with me because I, you know, I can see that there would have been, there could have been a time in my life when I would have been just as, um, impassioned and like, yes, we have to protect our citizens from themselves. I would, I don't think I would have gone so far as to say out loud because I don't believe to be true that people are essentially stupid and need to be protected from themselves. And so the argument sort of just sort of, um, culminated around the dairy industry and that we have whole milk offered to kids in school and that nutritionally speaking, their argument was that kids should not be drinking milk, 2% non-fat, whole or otherwise. And my argument was, why, at what point do we say that the government has the responsibility to protect us from ourselves? And it's a very slippery slope to me when we start putting those decisions into the hands of people that we never get to see that someone in authority is going to decide for me what milk fat is too high in something like chocolate per se, because in blanket, in a blanket sense, does the um, government have a responsibility to protect people? Sure. We have drinking laws. You have to be 21. You can't drive under the influence. You can't do harm to other people. And the policing comes in when you make bad decisions under the influence, like breaking news, Michael Phelps just arrested for DUI for the second time. That's bad. That being said, in terms of food and what people have access to, I don't think a policing state is the uh, answer to the obesity epidemic. I think I don't think that people are obese because they are stupid. I think that they are that this country struggles with an obesity epidemic because of a lack of education and people getting their nutrition information from a multi-billion dollar marketing machine hence the gluten-free um, aisle in my stop and shop. So if you didn't listen to last, week, last week's episode, you can hear me discuss that. Um, and their argument was that we don't have the environmental, like the, the environment's not safe enough to be producing cow, enough cows and producing enough milk to give every kid in school the option of low-fat or non-fat milk. And I said, well, then it's an environmental issue. It's not a nutrition issue. And I just found myself arguing a point that I, it made me feel both smart and I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about these issues and I stand by what I said, but also kind of old. Like I'm, I'm aging into a place where I don't want the government telling me what to do because I want to be trusted to make my own decisions. Now, if we calculated how much money it would take to police the food industry and the milk lobby and the gluten lobby and the whatever lobby, if we put all of that money into educating kids about healthy food choices and you will be presented with all of these options as an adult and a child who is beginning to have some agency in what they can choose to put into their bodies, I think it would be tenfold cheaper to educate kids to make better decisions about what they choose to spend their money on and then the food industry will fall in line. I don't think the answer is to say this is good for you, 
this is not, therefore it can't be on the shelves because we don't trust people to make their own decisions about what they put in their body. And I say this as someone who has a highly addictive personality and smoked cigarettes for 15 years, and I loved it. And if tomorrow there was a cure for everything that cancer or um, what's the breathing one, emphysema, all of the terrible things that came along with smoking cigarettes, I would go back to smoking tomorrow. But it's a level of education and realizing, hmm, maybe I don't want to spend the last 15 years of my life gasping for breath while other people around me are enjoying themselves. That came from inside. There would be no level of policing of someone coming to take the cigarettes out of my hands that would have made me realize, oh, you're right, I shouldn't smoke. It was just time and a decision that I had to come to on my own. And so when I think about who would I entrust to be the person, the arbiter of food law, I can't think of someone. I don't want to be that person. I don't want that responsibility to say, yeah, you know, you can't have... um, you can't have Smashburger anymore. I'm sorry. It's really bad for you. Now, does that mean that I should have Smashburger every day? No, but that's up to me to decide. And it'll become, you know, it's all going to come to a head when the, this generation that's not expected to outlive their parents have the health care bills that need to be paid for. And so it's all going to come to a head and we're going to have to decide where do we want to put our money? And perhaps one of the questions that needs to be asked is, is lobbying is the lobbying industry a place that we should be allowing people in positions of authority and decision making for what our kids eat? Should that be a common bedfellows that we are all comfortable with? So that being said, it made me feel smart and a little bit old. And um, I would love to hear your opinions. They, uh, the person I was talking to was aghast. I think they were really shocked to hear me sound... Um, I don't know. See, and I think it's a progressive stance. I don't know. I would love to hear your opinions. Tweet me at Chef Emily P. Whether or not you agree with me, if you think that this uh, that I am talking out of school, I would love to hear that too. Uh, and go back and listen to my rant on gluten free because I'd love to hear about that uh, and your opinions as well. Let's see. What else can I tell you? Oh, we have a listener question from. Um, Elliot, who is a longtime listener of Heritage Radio Network. And because I was not stumped by his question, but because I needed a little bit of help, I have called in an expert. So his question is about tortilla making, and we're going to take a short break. And after the break, my special guest, Shaw Lash, chef and self-described Mexicophile, is going to come on and walk me through the process of making tortillas.
Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode 52. We are one year into making radio on Sharp and Hot. Very exciting. So we started this show because my goal was to help answer home cooks' questions. And so with that in mind, listener Elliot wrote in and asked, subject line, corn tortillas. Can you do a show about this? I need, I read info on the internet, but I need more. I have some blue Hopi corn that I wanted to make into tortillas. Can you take me through the steps? Thanks, Elliot. So I called on an expert in the field, Shaw Lash, self-described Mexicophile, and um, Shaw, welcome to Sharp and Hot. Thank you. So tell me some of your background and what makes you an expert to answer Elliot's question. Uh... I would say my, my trip to Mexican food started in Mexico when I lived there for many years. Um, I then left Mexico for what I considered the beacon of serious Mexican food with uh, Chef Rick Bayless in Chicago. I worked for him for many, many years and am now working with my other serious mentor, uh, Diana Kennedy, to start her culinary center in Mexico with her. And I'm totally addicted to corn masa. <laughs> so we, he sent in a picture of an, a blue, an ear of blue corn. Can this be something that someone makes in their home kitchen from an ear of corn to a tortilla? Dried? It's a uh, dried ear of corn? I don't think so. It looks like it is a fresh ear of corn. So it needs to start dried. Okay. And it needs to be in the field state. Let's. I'm going to flip. I have the. I have the uh, no, that's dried. Oh, it's dried. Yeah, it's dried. So how can you tell that that picture is dried? Look at the husk. Looking at the husk. The husk is yellow. The that's husk correct. is not green. Yes. Okay. So on radio, has... she's describing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We've done like full cooking classes on radio. Yeah, yeah, totally. people, I think people are still listening. I think totally. they're still into it. <laughs> okay, so yes. Obviously, I should have known that that was a dried husk of corn, uh, ear of corn. Okay, so they have a, he has a ear of corn. So he needs to nixtamalize the corn. Um, so that means essentially that he's, he first would sort of slough the corn off the cob. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you do it with two ears of dry corn together and it sort of knocks it off. You can sort of visualize that. Like you maybe. rub them against each other right, like rubbing, to start a fire. Right, exactly. Okay. And then they sort of, you know, crumble off. Um all every different type of corn is going to have a different structure. It's going to have different sugar content. It's you know you don't want the corn that you're making masa out of to have a lot of sugar. You would never use like sweet American corn, for example. It's always going to be a field corn that's going to have a le- much lower sugar content. Mm-hmm. That corn needs to be nixtamalized, which is the process of soaking the corn with calcium hydroxide. It's called lime. It's an alkaline solution. Uh, you can actually get it at a lot of Mexican grocery stores and bodegas, specifically like in Corona, any of the Mexican neighborhoods here. Uh, it looks white and powdery, like sort of a, in the markets in Mexico, it looks like a, a cone, like a white powdery chalky cone. Okay. Um, and you bloom that lime and then there's different people use different processes. I would just say look on the internet because there's different percentages. If you want to do like for tortillas or if you want to do for tamales or if it's a different corn style but it's always like a percentage by weight okay 
You add the calcium hydroxide to the corn in water. When you say bloom, you mean dissolve? Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> dissolve um, the, the calcium hydroxide in a little bit of water. It'll pop and sputter a little bit because it is a highly alkaline, so highly alkaline material. Um, alkaline being on the range of acidic and alkaline on the other end of like actual lime, like citric lime. Mm-hmm. This is not citric lime. This is like the thing that's used to make concrete like in construction. Okay. Uh, lime, calcium hydroxide. Um, and so you then mix the calcium hydroxide with the water and the corn, bring it up to a simmer. D- people, again, depending on how long you want the corn to cook, sometimes you bring it up for a quick minute, sometimes you cook it for about 10. You then let it sit, and it sits, and what's happening is it's breaking apart the cellular walls of the corn, mm-hmm. weakening the cellular walls of the corn, um, and loosening the, the germ the inner seed germ part of the, the the piece of corn, the right. So when we think kernel. of an ear or a kernel of corn, it does have that little that's correct nubbin at the bottom. Yeah, the little nubbin. Okay. So that's like, for example, when you're eating hominy in mm-hmm. the south, the nubbin is puffed because mm-hmm. yeah. hominy in the south is the exact same process as nixtamalizing corn to make masa in Mexico. Okay. If you took hominy from the south and ground it through a mill, you would have masa. Fascinating. So could I buy, if I didn't have the corn to start with, could I buy a can of hominy or a bag of it, The texture hominy? wouldn't be quite right because the corn's a little bit different, but theoretically it would make a masa type dough. Okay. Um, definitely. But it would be, it's a little bit of a different type of corn. Um, okay. Because the actual corn itself has been selected for the hominy process versus for masa. Because right. there's just hundreds, thousands and thousands of different types of corn. And everything is going to have a little bit of a different flavor and a little bit of a different profile. Let me ask you on that note, a little sidebar question, which is in the United States, we hear 70 to 80 percent of the corn that we are eating as ears of corn or in any of the products is genetically modified. In Mexico, is it the same conversation? Because It is. A, the conversation okay. in Mexico right now. Um, two conversations that are happening in Mexico right now. One is the slow, horrible death of the demand of fresh masa as the industry is moving towards what's called masa harina or maseca, which is the brand name. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the, the dry version. That you, I mean, it's fine. I, I believe that it's good to make fresh corn tortillas. Therefore, you can go to like Whole Foods or something and buy a bag of maseca. I've seen it on the grocery shelves even though i know it's made with gmo corn they still sell it but um that is like saying you know what a mashed potato tastes like after you've eaten instant mashed potatoes mixed with water Ah. versus eating like french mashed potatoes made with heavy cream and butter okay it's like a hundred it's like yes they're physically the same thing but one doesn't even compare to the other so that's one conversation is the maseca the second conversation is that um, almost all the commercially sold fresh masa in Mexico, most of it is coming from GMO corn, pro- corn sources. So people are trying to fight back. People like um, our friends at, at Macienda uh, are trying to support the um, direct trade with farmers that are doing land race corn from Mexico so that we can sort of save those um, original strains. So there's a difference between the genetically modified that's being sold sort of as a byproduct, I assume, of Monsanto cross-pollination and selecting, as you said earlier, some corn was selected to become hominy and some corn is selected to become... Yeah, I mean, there's 
thousands of different types of corn, Mm -hmm. um, thousands of different, you know, even regions. Like it's going to be, you know, like, for example, the sweet corn that I eat from the Midwest tastes different than the sweet corn that I eat from Long Island. Right, right. Um, Even though, you know, it might be like two different seeds or one might grow better. One might be naturally hybrid. Naturally hybridized is very different than, you know, Monsanto going in and like genetically modifying the actual um, genetic structure. Right. Um, So... That is sort of a, a different conversation versus just selecting a type of corn because it makes good masa. Right. Right. Okay. So this blue Hopi corn that he has, is this a candidate for good masa? I don't know enough about that specific, but blue corn itself is definitely a great candidate for masa. You pr- I mean, you might even see, you know, blue corn tortilla chips in the grocery store and stuff because it really does make really, really, really nice masa. But if you wanted to, you'd bring it up to that temperature, let it soak. Um, typically you let it soak for about 12 hours. It loosens the, the cellular wall and loosens that germ. Um, you can use a hand mill. Um, you, again, they're available in like, you know, Corona and the Mexican grocery stores and whatnot. Does it look like a meat grinder? Exactly. You clamp it on a table. Um, it's a little bit challenging to do it at home just because you always want to do it on stone and those hand mills are two metal plates typically they're not two stone plates mm-hmm. and you want it to be those those pieces of stone uh my dear friend woman named leslie tayez has a nixtamatic which we're all very jealous of which basically looks like a KitchenAid mixer physically or like a um a wheatgrass juicer but it you put instead of putting wheatgrass in the top you put corn in the top and what comes out the side is the masa because it's essentially grinding it she bought it in mexico city wow <laughs> so whenever we're messing around and, and playing with making small batches of corn masa for you know ourselves or something it's always fun to use the nixomatic yeah. i think it makes a good product but you can also again use that hand that hand mill to to grind the corn now you mentioned the germ is the germ discarded in this process or you eat the germ you just want it separate like what you exactly? want to sort of hand separate a little bit but then as long as it's it's sort of loosened chemically from the corn um it also sort of sloughs itself off okay so then we'll you put it in the grinder whichever nixtamatic or hand grinder that yeah. you have could you use a kitchen aid it does. It needs that you need the two plates. It's okay. not a meat grinder. What's happening on the inside? A meat grinder is forcing meat through a disc that's got holes. Mm-hmm. This is two discs that have ridges carved in it that are rotating counterclockwise to each other. Okay, so it's going vertically between these two plates as they push the tension between the two of them. Not a blade pushing it. That's correct. Through that's as correct. A meat grinder. Okay. Um, it's two blades spinning counterclockwise to each other mm-hmm. constantly and <laughs> the ide- hand gestures happening. the hand gestures are happening <laughs> ideally what you want is you want those two plates to be to be stone that's why you whenever you see on a, a bag of tortillas it says stone ground corn masa mm-hmm. it's referring to those stones okay um those stones require maintenance if you're going to be heavy, like, right? very heavy, yeah. if you're in a commercial space where you're, you're doing, you know, hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds at a time, the stones are three feet across oh, and wow. really, really, really heavy. Yeah. Um, but, and then those stones have to be maintained, which means you have to keep re carving the ridges that almost like it's like a wheel and you keep re carving like by hand, the as ridges, you, as you would sharpen a knife. As you would sharpen a knife, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that, depending on the volume that you're doing, pe- some people say do it daily. Some people say do it weekly. Some people rotate their big... I was, had a very close relationship with the Masa factory in Chicago when I was working for Rick. 
And they would constantly have a process of sending them out and bringing them back to people who would just carve the ridges back into the pieces of stone. Um, so the masa goes down through between the two discs that are spinning, and what comes out is masa. So is it... Oh, I just lost my head. Hey, Jack. Oh, there we are. Then we're back. Um, do we... Do, is it wet? Or is like is there have you we drained the corn enough where it's what's the consistency of the masa coming out? It is going to be a wet. Let's see if I can. If you thought of like cornmeal that had been slightly wet, mm-hmm. slightly moistened, if you then want to make that into tortillas, you need to add a little bit more water to it to get it to the consistency of play doh. That's okay. That's our yeah. recommendation. Yeah. Um, the fun thing about masa, working with it with water, is there's no gluten structure in it. Um, and so you can't overwork it like bread dough. You could just keep working it and working it and working it. And it, all it would do is warm up. Okay. And then maybe you'd want to cool it down again. But it, it doesn't become tougher. You don't have to be very sensitive with it like you do if you're working with pizza dough, for example. So it's forgiving. It's much more forgiving. Okay. The only thing that's not forgiving is that if you're trying to add enough water to make it like a loose Play-Doh and you add too much water, you can't get the water out. Could you add more? You could corn? add more corn. Okay. If you're if you're working with all that you have and you add too much water, yeah, you can't get the water out. Okay. So you've got you then have a very sticky tortilla situation on your hand. <laughs> okay. So now we've worked it and it's the consistency of play-doh. And then what's the next step to get that to be a tortilla? So tortilla presses. Um, I own one of those and awesome. I love it. Yeah. Do you have a wooden or a metal? A metal. Awesome. But I will confess that I have only made them with maseca. <laughs> but it's the easiest thing to do. So and then after this whole process, we can talk about where you can get fresh corn masa because it's not, you don't have to do all of this. I mean, I, you know, I think it's great that your listener wants to make it from his Hopi corn like ear. That's fantastic. But this is like, how often do you make mole like once in your life? Like how often are you actually going to grind corn masa yourself? I think it's an amazing process. Um, but I think it's also just as equally important to support the businesses and the places that are doing it so that we all have everybody has a molino in their city where they can go and get fresh corn masa if they're interested in doing this so we have this in new york we do it's called um tortilleria nixtamal it's in corona okay i'm gonna find them and put them on the website so please that people can find yeah link. yeah Will absolutely they ship um it's very perishable masa okay. is very okay. perishable it, it it literally sours in a day okay um unless you freeze it it freezes pretty well but the friction of the passing and grinding of the corn through the, both plates warms it up to probably like warm to the touch. Mm-hmm. So warm to the touch is probably like in the 80s or so. Right. Or I guess no higher. Warm to the touch is just we touch it and you feel it. It's a little bit warm. It needs to be cooled down pretty quickly um, or else it will sort of t- turn sour. Um, any place that's receiving, that's making fresh corn tortillas from fresh corn masa in a restaurant environment gets their masa daily. From so that requires having a local. Do you call it a nixtamal? Molino, the word for mill in Spanish. Okay, I know that in Philly on South Street, there's an incredible tortilla factory where you can just go and buy them like by the sleeve. Are they? They were so good. Are and they're grinding corn. I'm almost certain, but I don't. Because there's a few places. Sure. Um, there's a lot of places that actually just buy tons of maseca. Oh, I wonder. Now and you I can, and if look in their back, look in their back warehouse, like you can kind of peek around the business. And if you see bags of Maseca, then I'll know. Yeah. Like for example, there's, there's a place out in my neighborhood, a warehouse out in, in Bushwick and you walk by and you see tortilla and you're like, Oh, that's amazing. And then you look in the side door and there's giant pallets of 
commercial size bags of Maseka. Which you could very easily do at home yourself. Which you could very or, easily yeah. do at home yourself, which is fine. Like, again, that's that's a fine thing. And there's actually more and more um, dried masa, masa harina brands that are coming out that are n- being made with non-GMO that are mm-hmm. more like boutiques, smaller for the home kitchen. I know Brooklyn Kitchen, I think, is going to start carrying one. They've given offered some samples to me to play around with. Cool. Um, I teach a cooking class there on masa. So. And so that you can do the, the masa harina, like, like I mentioned, the, the mill. Um, so you, to make the tortilla, that's where we were at. Um, you have the, the metal press, and metal or wooden is fine. Uh, both are available, kind of both are around. Uh, cast iron is ideal. It's just the best. Cast iron is that's the, one I have. the absolute it's awesome. best. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, in general, cast iron for cooking um, tortillas is just the best because the heat retention. Um, and you want to have a griddle. Uh, we call them comals in Mexico. They're like round griddles that are either stainless or um, they're actually clay in Oaxaca in southern Mexico. Or um, they call them um, comal de barro or stainless or aluminum is the least ideal, but the most cheap and mm-hmm. the most readily available everywhere in Mexico. Um, so you basically, you want to use what I what we call t-shirt bags, which are like the grocery store bags. Um you cut them into a circle mm-hmm. that matches the size of the plate that you're working with for your press. Don't use cling wrap. Don't use foil. Don't use wax paper. Cling wrap or saran wrap sticks too much. Foil is going to tear and wax is going to leave a residue. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, use a t-shirt bag. But an unprinted one, because if you use the printed, the ink will rub off onto your tortilla and you'll end up with like a fairway tortilla because <laughs> it'll say fairway across the side of it. Right. And so, those are probably not vegetable-based inks. And those are probably not <laughs> vegetable-based inks. So just a really neutral, like, plain, you know, like, frosted white. You know, I, I whenever I'm teaching the Brooklyn Kitchen, I just grab 10 bags from their front counter mm-hmm. people. Okay. Um, cut circles the size that match your plates. And then you just roll out a little ball in your hand, you know, as big as you want your tortilla. That's... Uh, golf ball size no ping pong or smaller ping pong or smaller and you'll see that again this is the part where it's so nice that tortilla dough is so forgiving uh you'll you can press it out and if it gets like explodes and gets way too big just scrape it up together put it back in the bowl and do it again and so you can keep doing it until you can figure out the size that you want i personally like to do like what i call taqueria size tortillas which are like the ones that end up being about what four or five inches across mm-hmm. um just because i like to eat small tacos because there's a big better ratio i think between ingredients and taco wrapper do you um, double up your tortillas for a taco wrapper Good question. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why tacos are doubled up is because they're made with, tortillas are made with maseca and they fall apart. Ah, okay. That is the only reason. Um, If you actually make a tortilla with fresh corn masa and you hand press it, you don't ever double wrap it because it will stand up. All right. It has enough structure and it uh, doesn't need that double wrapping, whereas traditionally, you know, typically if you're eating a taco and a corn tortilla, the reason it's double wrapped is because it starts to disintegrate in your hands. Mm-hmm. Well, it disintegrates because mm-hmm. it's made from a dried corn masa product. Fascinating. Okay. Um, we are almost out of time. I want to ask you one other question. If you wanted to make... Okay, well, let me preface this by our fried taco, like hard crispy shells, are, is that traditional or is that an Americanized... It's a Tex-Mex thing. Okay. For sure. And so um, could this, uh, if you use, if you go through this whole process and you have extras or whatever it is, could you fry them and make tortilla chips or make yourself some Yeah, um, what, what, what you do in Mexico is you make chilaquiles. Chilaquiles are the, the thing that, you know, abuelitas developed 
to reuse day-old corn tortillas because in Mexico you don't ever use your day-old. You go get fresh because everybody has a molino. So you pan fry the cut-up tortilla bits um, and then sauce them with tomatillo sauce or tomato sauce or black beans, my favorite. If you do, if you blend up a can of black beans with chipotle and make a black bean sauce, mm-hmm. that's like my absolute favorite um, chili quiles that there are. Oh, um, you don't so really, w- <laughs> the hand-pressed tortillas don't make chips as good of chips because they're pretty thick. Right. It's actually better to make chips chips out of the tortillas that are machine pressed that you can buy at the grocery store because they just tend to be more thin and more uniform mm-hmm. um so yeah chilaquiles is the thing to do or freeze your masa and don't make it all into tortillas wrap your masa in um a plastic bag and then you can freeze it for up to you know a month or so wow okay so i often get asked if i could eat if i would eat one thing for the rest of my life if, and i without any hesitation always say mexican cuisine mm-hmm. i could tacos ta- i mean i could <laughs> i could forego every other cuisine if it meant that i could eat fresh and vibrant and exactly what you're describing this like me too rustic food i'm going to make a pilgrimage when is the cooking the culinary center opening in we're gonna start with classes in january that soon yeah well if yeah. you need a radio person i know <laughs> no it's gonna be really really exciting and actually um i'm also working on um producing a feature link documentary on diana that's going to come out at the end of next year that's amazing um and that's going to be having from here in new york so it's going to be a very exciting time for us how do people follow what you're working on diana kennedy center.org okay there's and an you- ability to add an uh email address and you can also connect to me through that website Okay. Um, and you can, you know, get on our mailing list and we'll make all announcements for the center off that mailing list. Amazing. And while you were talking, I was looking up Nick's Dematic on Amazon. I cannot seem to find one. So this is, I, know. Uh, we're I, gonna, I, I see I'm, where your jealousy comes from. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that a couple of us have begged our friend <laughs> to bring them one back for us from Mexico Maybe City. Maybe you could import them and sell them at Brooklyn I Kitchen. I know. Wouldn't that be the coolest thing ever? Like, and now you leave my class and here's the next thematic for you. We made our own masa from corn that she had brought back from Mexico City and we made tlacoyos, which are these sort of football-shaped um, corn patties filled with like beans and squash and stuff. And the masa was, was perfect from the next thematic. That's we were amazing. very jealous. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Next week, we are going to have QVC's resident foodie, David Venable, on. He has a show called In the Kitchen with David on QVC. I'm going to ask him all about what it's like to be the resident foodie on QVC. And let's see... um, we just have we have lots of fun stuff coming up. Go to sharpenhot.com. I've put up the upcoming guests in the upper right hand corner. They are all clickable. So if you see someone's name and you don't know who they are, you can click on them and learn more about that person. You can find me on Facebook forward slash sharpenhot and on Twitter at Chef Emily P. I asked for an invitation for Ello. I haven't gotten it yet. So if you are already on Ello, uh, I'll take care of that one for you. Oh, you can do. Are you on Ello, Jack? <laughs> yeah. Is it worth it? No. Oh, yeah, I've heard that the crest of, like, excitement to disappointment is about 20 minutes. That's about right. (laughs) Until next week, everybody keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.